0: Police One Academy is leading the way in high-quality, affordable training for officers nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 1,000 HD videos and 175 full-length courses in a robust learning management system. Training is certified or accepted for training credit in 35 states. Join the industry's most officer-friendly learning platform with more than 60,000 subscribers. To schedule a free demo, go to policeoneacademy.com forward slash policing matters. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley.
1: Hey, I'm Jim Dudley.
0: Jim, we have with us a special guest, Alex Gerald. Um, Alex, you and um, Jeff Snipes helped co-author with Kermit Alexander a book called The Valley of the Shadow of Death, A Tale of Tragedy and Redemption. Um, I've only just begun to read it. It's gripping. It is gripping. I'll put it this way. Publishers Weekly called it, Quote, a compelling narrative that rivals a first-rate thriller. It absolutely is that. It's like reading a novel where you're kind of, it's a page-turner. So tell me a little about how you came upon the topic and, you know, tell us a little about the book.
2: Okay. Um, First of all, thanks for having me here, Doug. And um, the book actually has a pretty curious um, point of origin, which is the old gas chamber at San Quentin. Uh, Jeff Snipes and I were out there on a small tour And the tour ended in the old gas chamber, which they call the Mean Green Killing Machine. Mm -hmm. And a couple of death row guards came in and were sort of bantering about the most dangerous guy on death row. And they both looked at each other and said, Cox. And I said, is that Taekwon Cox? And they said, yeah. Do you know the case? And I said, yeah, I knew it pretty well. And I remembered uh, Kermit Alexander had played on the uh, 49ers and then the Rams and uh, tragically, in uh, the last day of August in 1984, um, his family was murdered in a home invasion, quadruple homicide. And I couldn't stop thinking about the case once it was put back in my head. I started researching it and at that point tried to figure out, is there a book here?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, clearly there is a book here. Um- Take us through. uh, I'll set the stage a little bit. So Kermit is in the NFL. Uh, He has a large family. He's the the first of I think eleven children. That's correct. And he his mother's home is the is the home that was invaded. She had opened the screen door to allow, you know, her, her morning routine was to, you know, go get the newspaper, open the screen door, allow the home to get a nice cool breeze, come through it. And, you know, she's waiting for, first of all, Kermit to arrive for breakfast or coffee, and, uh, and, and the other children who were, who were smaller than, uh, younger than Kermit to come down from their, their rooms and have breakfast. And then these, these killers come in. And, Set the, set the rest of it for us.
2: Yeah, it's, um, as you said at the beginning, um, we wrote it to read like a murder mystery, but within it to give a great deal of uh, kind of historical and sociological detail about the African-American community in Los Angeles, about uh, matters of law and order, policing, the law, and um, what we find at the beginning is there's this kind of mysterious van ride and it's at daybreak and the killers go over there and for about a month after the killing which was just brutal and children were shot in their beds Mm -hmm. and this is in the jurisdiction of the um, Newton police station down there which had the nickname Shootin' Newton and these are some of the most grizzled and hardcore kind of gang and homicide cops. And they came out with tears in their eyes because they just said that with all the gang eruption that's happening. This is 1984. They just still hadn't seen something like this: children shot in their in their sleep in their beds. And so for a month, it's just utterly unknown what happened. Why did this happen? And everybody's baffled.
1: I first, I first, I've got to say, I I love the book and I love the the tone. Uh, it reminded me of. Um, an L.A. Confidential sort of uh, weaving of the story. And uh, there's times when you're reading this book and it, it seems like fiction, but we know it's true. And we know that uh, Kermit and his wife were very much involved in um, the recent um, uh, vote in California to uphold um, the death penalty and also to reduce uh, the number of appeals and, and the length of um, a time on uh, death row. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and what did Kermit say uh, to you that that seemed powerful?
2: Yeah. And the, one of the issues that weaves its way around this is the death penalty and capital punishment. And in the course of our research here, we were actually going out to San Quentin prison so much that we had a year pass into the prison, which was a somewhat strange thing to have. (laughs) And um, we were able to go out, um, I won't uh, specify exactly the channels that this happened, but we were able to actually go out onto death row a few times, East Bach condemned. And you've got at this point, in California, about 740 men on death row. They're all at San Quentin. There's a handful of women, maybe about a dozen down in the Central Valley. But um, the death penalty in California right now is in a a real state of limbo. The last execution was in early 2006, so we're now going on over a decade since we've had one. Far more people uh, die uh, of old age, of suicide, of drug overdose, of being shanked by a fellow inmate than they actually do of the death penalty. And so the Alexander family, who obviously was, was immediately uh, touched by this, has um, been trying to um, make the death penalty more efficient. And I, I just want to stress that I got to know the whole family, and particularly Kermit extremely well during the process of this. I just want to stress, in no way is he bloodthirsty, vengeful. It's just simply a matter that this is the law, this is someone who did it, clearly fits within it, and it just seems that the machinery has been completely gummed up and derailed. Twice in 2012 and then in 2016, um, votes were held to try and Um, through a referendum get rid of the death penalty. Both times they lost and yet it still remains gummed up. And the final thing I'll say in answer to Jim's question about the death penalty is when you really do research this there's nobody on death row who you know, happen to just be there at the wrong place in the wrong time. This isn't even anybody who committed a first degree murder. These are first degree murders with special circumstances set out by law in the penal code. For example, you kill a police officer, you kill more than one victim, you kill through poison or torture. And if you actually go into the facts of these cases, They are just gruesome. I mean, these are little girls thrown off of 100-foot bridges. These are old women sexually abused, and then the killer goes in uh, to their house. After they have then murdered the person, they turn on the TV, eat their food, and watch a movie. I mean, this is utterly sociopathic behavior. You have to really earn the death penalty.
0: Yeah, and it, as you'd pointed out in in the state of California, and I would imagine in other states where this death penalty debate is ongoing and continuing, uh, Ohio comes to mind, Illinois comes to mind, uh, where they've had full-on moratoriums and just say no, we're not doing any more. Uh, to your point, these are not these are not people who to my way of looking at the world, need to be around anymore. These are folks who have done so, such grisly, heinous crimes that Supermax isn't good enough for them. That it's... Bye. Um, I want to kind of pivot and change topics just a little bit. Um, tell me a little about Kermit. Tell me a little about the man.
2: Okay. Uh, Kermit, as you mentioned uh, previously, Doug, is the first of 11 children. And one of the really fascinating parts of this book to me was um, going back into Kermit's past. And Kermit is born in Louisiana during the Jim Crow era. He's born in uh, 1941. Um, His father had been a member of a very interesting group called the Montford Point Marines. And the Montford Point Marines are the first uh, blacks uh, black Marine unit. And they were fighting primarily in the South Pacific against the Japanese and doing the kind of dirtiest, nastiest, uh, most grisly and violent um, kind of cleanup work going in. They were called Tunnel Rats trying to get the Japanese out of the tunnels where they were bunkered in in places like uh, Iwo Jima.
0: And the Japanese had thought they were ghosts, you know, all of these kind of or demons or something like that because they were... were particularly effective fighting force.
2: Right, and also they just weren't used to seeing African-Americans. They see them coming mm-hmm. in this tunnel in this kind of surreal landscape, and so that was his father. And the whole family has uh, been in Louisiana, uh, kind of going back and forth with the Klan and things like that. And so there's this there's this code of the South that, it, that infuses this whole story, and... Uh, For Kermit, there's these kind of two themes that are always battling within him. (laughs) One is you as the oldest son, the son of this Marine who fought in World War II, you have to always man up and protect your own. And then on the other hand, there's this idea you have to control yourself. Mm -hmm. And those two themes at times can come together, but at times you can see how they can easily derail. Mm -hmm. You've got to be the man and fight, but keep under control. And Kermit would tell me often, he said, you know, as, and Kermit was the, um, pre- the third president of the NFL Players Association. And one of his big issues is the concussions, the concussion protocol. Uh, he's open that he has definitely suffered from that. Um, Kermit, uh, Greg Sir, the uh, police chief of San Francisco, said to me once, he said, I remember watching him play. And he was Ronnie Lott before there was Ronnie Lott. Yeah. So you imagine hitting like that with the helmets he used to have, and Kermit said to me- Those said, old
0: cheap Rydells? <laughs> yeah,
2: Kermit said to me, he said, there's no such thing as a concussion. Then he said, you got your mel rung, and as long as you could answer the phone, you got back out
0: there. Yeah, and the trainer's holding up two fingers and tapping <laughs> you on the thigh twice. How many have I got up? Yeah, yeah.
2: You line up the wrong way, they turn you around. Yeah. Um, but um, Kermit said that despite all of the dangers that football has, um, he still is a big proponent of the sport, and he said, just frankly, he said, it saved my life. He said, mm-hmm. if I hadn't gotten into football, I would have likely become a very dangerous uh, and violent person. This gave me an opportunity to get paid for it and get cheered for it. He said baseball was his first love, mm-hmm. but you just can't attack people. on The baseball dive in the same way without getting thrown out.
0: Yeah, his parents, um, both of his parents, were particularly influential on how Great a person he became. Um, his his mom would it was was a strict strict yeah. mother. Um, she was a person of great faith, and she ensured that all of her kids went to parochial schools yep. and were raised in the Catholic religion. Yeah. Um, very traditional, and you know. And there was a TV show when I was growing up called "Wait Till Your Father Gets Home," and that was that was the final straw. If she had to say that yeah. you know. Say he he was raised by really good people in a place that, at the time. Was beginning to disintegrate into a lot of gang activity, and, and I, I recall reading a passage where it was either his mother or his father who said, "If you're going to run with the gangs, you're not coming home. Right. You don't. You they become your family." And I think that that had a tremendous effect on the type of extraordinary person he grew up to be.
2: Yeah. So he moves out. Uh, what you're referring to there, the family moves out as part of what's called the Great Migration. There's right. about six million African Americans. Uh, over several decades, flee the the Deep South. And they move out to LA in the 40s, and they will end up in some of the new public housing that's a kind of um, after effect of uh, Roosevelt's New Deal. And they'll be in Watts at the um, Jordan Downs housing projects. And he said at first, they were just beautiful. They were great, Uh, there were baseball diamonds, low-level low housing, not the high-rise towers that you picture in places like Chicago, green lawns, and then over time, it starts to disintegrate, gangs and drugs come in, and he said that there was always the message, loud and clear from the family, if you end up going down that route, pack your bags, that's who you're with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, on the topic of gangs, I know you made several trips, uh, you and Jeff made several trips to L.A., uh, interviewed the cops who... Worked uh, alongside um, the gang units. Uh, What was your biggest surprise um, coming from them in regards to the the gangs? I I think a lot of America, um, especially non-law enforcement people, when they hear gangs, you know, they they think West Side Story, the (laughs) the Sharks and the Jets. But uh, you know, we've got some real violent gangs that people uh, have no concept over in in the United States. Shed a little light on that.
2: Uh, It's a great question, Jim, and I'll answer it in in three parts. The first thing is we went uh, throughout the neighborhood, which is Hyde Park in South Central. Um, We created the route that the um, killers actually took on the fateful morning. Um, We went with academic gang experts, police gang experts, um, actually uh, got some people from uh, from different gangs to uh, give us some interesting information about things. First thing was what a kind of interplay there is between the gang detectives and the gang members in those areas. They all knew each other. Mm-hmm. We would drive by, and the thing that most seemed to astound the gang members was that one of the gang cops had grown a goatee. In other words, they knew this guy, and there was this sort of game going on. And what I found real interesting is that one of the gang cops said to me from the 77th, um, said to me, look... Nobody's flying bandanas anymore. Nobody's got you know big red shirts to show their bloods, or this is a crip neighborhood, the blue shirts. He said, but it's subtle. And so he said, look at this guy over here. And there was a big guy there, and he waved to the gag detectives, gag detectives, he said, just look there. He had blue rims on his glasses, and he had his cat next to him that he was petting, and the cat had a blue collar. He had blue shoelaces. He said, see, there's still fly in it, but it's much more subtle because the game was over that you would just be so overt about it because that was a way to get pulled over. Mm -hmm. Second thing that fascinated me is, and this is something that I cannot stress enough um, and you, as a as a thirty year officer, I, I think will be very familiar with this. But how calculated it all is! These aren't guys that are just doing this and oh well, and they can't control it. Each it's it's a it's an evolutionary thing. As a law changes, they adapt their behavior to that law. Mm-hmm. If you lessen the sanctions, you lessen the enforcement, you lessen the likelihood they're going to adapt to that. Likewise, if you strengthen it, they're going to adapt. Hopefully in a better way and what I heard over and over and over on the streets was the three strikes law made a difference. They said guys who had two strikes were keeping their guns at home, keeping their drugs at home. It's not to say that be Pollyanna here, oh they have no guns anymore, they don't do drugs, they're clean and sober Mm -hmm. and, but they didn't wanna have them on them out there. They didn't wanna have them on the streets and that's a real victory for the community that those drugs and the guns and the vicious interplay stay inside more and again it's not to say the problem was completely solved but it did make a big difference and i think that's one of the big reasons you saw the homicide rates and the violent crime rates go down in those areas and then the third thing that was fascinating to me was talking to people on the streets and some of them would say the older ones uh that had been there the kind of uh worst stage of this was the late 80s with the crack cocaine epidemic and a lot of these guys would look back on that almost as sort of a golden age, and they said, that's when we could have our guns there. That's when if you were in the gang and you were a crip, no one messed with you. There was almost a kind of nostalgia. That's when the neighborhood was more black. It's become progressively more uh, Latino or Hispanic over the last uh, three decades. So those were the three things that I really took away from it, was the you know how much of an interplay there was between the gangsters and the gang cops, Uh, how much the people on the street were very aware of what the law was and how it altered their behavior and how much they looked back on the kind of wild west days of the 80s, Mm -hmm. 1980s, which of course were horrible for any of the law-abiding residents as a kind of golden age of gangsterism.
0: Crazy. Um, I always end interviews with this question. Is there anything that I've not asked you that you think should be added to this discussion? Um,
2: At this moment, I think, I would like to add one thing. Yeah. And the main thing I would like to add now is what I think this book does, above all else, that makes it valuable in these times um, is the fact that you really get the perspective of the African-American victim. And you talked about Kermit's upbringing and Kermit's family. But one thing that Kermit will tell you in a second, and we would sit around his pool down in Riverside for hours into the night talking about these things, great storyteller and he would just say of course our family is not angels we had all our share of problems and squabbles and this and that but when it all came down to it you know our parents did keep us you know essentially on the straight and narrow but what you see through this is a real family with real problems that loved each other did what they could to get along in tough times and what violent crime does to that community And for all we hear of Black Lives Matter and the uh, movements of today, I think what's really a shame is that the real stories of the black victims of crimes lives, we don't hear much about, and they don't seem to matter in the national narrative right now. And I think that's pretty tragic.
0: Well, with this book, I I believe you have brought that to light. Um, Importantly, it's just a really fun read. It's It's a gripping, page-turning masterpiece. So I want to thank you. I want to thank um, Jeff Snipes, Kermit Alexander, of course, uh, for putting together what I think is um, a a great book for any reader, whether you're in law enforcement or you're not.
2: Well, thanks a lot, Doug. That means a lot to me. And um, I think that that'll mean a lot to the Alexander family as
0: well. If you have questions for Alex, um, you can send them through to
1: us and I will get them over to him. Um, Any kind of questions about the book? Yeah, and I just wanted to point out, thank you very much for the interview. And uh, you can find a pretty extensive excerpt on uh, Amazon of the book, The Valley of the Shadow of Death. And uh, take a look at it. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree, it's a a great read. The
0: Valley of the Shadow of Death, a tale of tragedy and redemption. uh, The story of Kermit Alexander and his tragic loss. Please take a look.